Welcome to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by Robert Kafsik, a senior economist from the BMO Economics team. This week is titled, The Canadian Housing Dilemma. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.writesis at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Rob, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Um, you are the uh, resident housing expert, at least in my mind. And so I'm bringing you back on to talk about the kind of permanent favorite topic or seemingly permanent favorite topic for most Canadians. Uh, again, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Excellent. So let's let's get right to it. About a year ago, uh, I think I had you on, it must have been almost exactly a year ago, uh, we put out a piece in which I pretty much piggybacked on you, giving kind of a, a, a rundown on measures the government, the bank, uh, any any policymaker could really uh, take to, to slow down uh, what at the time was a very hot housing market. And, and, and you warned very loudly that if measures were not taken, things would get worse. And here we are, one year later, and things are worse. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so, yes. (laughs) Um, So I I guess, can you give us a lay of the land? Maybe lay out, I guess, what you think are the key drivers as as to what's been uh, persistently propelling housing here. And then I'll kind of chime in and, and, and you'll shoot down all the other things that I that I bring in all, all the counter arguments as, as we go. Sounds good. Um, so there's, I mean, there's a lot going on, as, as you know, right? So I think, so the simplest way to characterize it overall would be that we just have a fundamentally very strong housing market driven by demand side demographic fundamentals and some supply side constraints. Uh, and so for the last 10 or 15 years, we've seen this prolonged, bull market in Canadian housing. And remember, like for the last 10 years or so, a lot of people were, were saying, oh, there's a bubble in Canada and house prices are collapsing. For for that entire period, you and I have been arguing, no, it's not, right? It's very well-rooted in fundamentals. Um, so the pandemic, I think then early on, magnified a lot of those fundamentals, pulled forward some of the demographic demand that we were going to get, obviously created very, very sudden demand for space, um, and opened up kind of an affordability valve into some of the smaller markets outside the big cities because we are able to work from home now on a more hybrid basis, right? So all of that is kind of fundamentally driven. But where it got concerning for, I know, for you and I a year ago was when we started to see uh, the market kind of move beyond that, where it was starting to kind of feed itself. The price growth was starting to kind of feed on itself. So prices were accelerating just simply because expectations of, of, of further price growth, right? And we saw that in survey data. Uh, we saw that in the share of investors coming into the market, which is you know a good 10 or 15 percentage points above what's historically been normal. 
And then obviously you see it in 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 the ramp up in in the pace of price growth, which now is running again at like forty or fifty percent annualized on a seasonally adjusted basis. And that's, I mean, obviously that's just not sustainable. So, I, I mean, that, that that's kind of an overview of just very fundamentally strong market that is kind of started to feed on itself and pull in more speculation and more investment activity. Okay, so what we read a lot of, and and um, I'm I'm just playing devil's advocate here because I don't agree, but I'm going to say it anyways. Uh, and and this is an argument made by many of our competitors uh, is is supply is the problem. There are not enough houses to satiate the demand, the, the, that strong underlying demand that you're talking about. We need more houses. Canada, go and build me more houses. Why is that dead wrong? <laughs> well, so what I do sympathize with is kind of is, is the composition of the supply that we do have. So if you look at like the raw number of units, we're building a lot. Like there are 300,000 under construction in Canada right now, for example, right? Which is a record high. In raw terms, it's a record high if you adjust for the size of the population, which is, to be fair, growing very quickly. Um, but we have like a, we have a big bulge in the population that is moving into the low 30s. And you and I both know that when you have your second and third kid, you need space, right? The problem is for the last 15 years or so, by rule, we've not been building single detached housing. We've been building condos and towns and intensifying. And that's fine. Like It brings us the number of units that we have, but maybe the composition is a little bit wrong for where we are in the demographic curve right now. So, so that's fine. But in terms of like these, the, these arguments that Canada just has the lowest housing stock in the G7, well, yeah, we're kind of you know, consistent with what we see in the US and Australia. And when you adjust for things like household size and, and the available land that we have and things like that, um, we actually don't look out of whack at all. So, so some of those statistics, I think, are a little bit manipulated to, to make a point that might not totally be valid. And then when you hear things like the, the panel that advised Ontario to build a million homes over the next 10 years, first of all, we're just physically never going to be able to do that, right? Because we're already pushing full employment today and we already have a, like a severe lack of skilled trades in the building industry. So we're already running at capacity. There's no way we can do an extra million over the next decade. Um, and then do we really need it? Like it's that that's debatable as well, just given how much is already under construction today. And what usually happens is that when demand starts to slow down and it will when rates rise, because that's really where the excess is right now, then you gotta get left with this big overhang of inventory that in some cases takes, you know, three, five years, if not longer, to absorb. And unfortunately, that's the nature of housing, right? Where demand can disappear very, very quickly. But supply takes a number of years to come to completion and then saturates the market for a long time. And we've seen that in markets like Alberta very recently, Regina, some others. If you go back through history, it's, 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 it's how that usually plays out. So contrary to the argument that we don't have enough houses, I think if you look at what is really different today versus pre-COVID norms, it's just excess demand. And, and simplest way to look at it is just look how many sales are transacting. We're running like 30 or 40% above what was normal pre-COVID in terms of sales volumes, and that's demand, right? It's not supply. Yep, just the, just demand, and that that's pushing prices up thirty-ish percent year over year. Some some cities more, uh, even even the, the the western cities are starting to, to, or I guess the prairie cities are starting to uh, to catch a bit here as people realize that there's they're they're relatively cheap. Uh, but I mean, if you look at the home price charts and and a lot of 
uh, Ontario cities that are, I mean, smaller centers, uh, to put it nicely, uh, the price prices have gone parabolic, and and that that's just not good. I mean, any any line that goes parabolic probably comes back down to earth at some point, uh, and I that that's probably the risk here. Um, so like, there's, I mean, that it, it's pretty clear the Bank of Canada is going to be pushing rates consistently higher here, uh, whether they do it in in twenty five basis point increments or fifty basis point increments, that uh, they're getting rates back to neutral. Uh, in, in relatively short order. So, what what will that mean for housing? Does it just, does it just cool demand and then things slow in an orderly fashion and 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 sales kind of come back down to trend? Uh, or maybe is there something a little bit scarier that's going to be coming down the road for housing? Uh, my sense is that the like the, the asset price itself is going to get tested, and we're probably going to see some pockets of the country correct right and that could be 10 to 20 percent i don't think that's totally unreasonable um and we, i mean we saw we saw cases back in 2016 2017 where certain pockets of the market that were extremely heated after a little bit of a policy response actually did come off 10 percent or more you just you didn't kind of notice it because they were pretty isolated within within the country and they were in the context of a broader economic expansion right but it did happen uh and and i so i think here like here's the thing the the market through 2021 and early this year at its peak was priced at around one to one and a half percent in terms of the underlying mortgage rate right first it was five-year fixed that were down around one and a half percent or slightly lower those rates backed up. I think we're above three percent on five-year fix now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, obviously, going up almost probably by the day at this point. Uh, and then, what did Canadians do? They rotated into variable because they were still, you know, getting one percent variable. Well, now, you know, w- w- when we look a year from now, if the Bank of Canada does raise rates another five, six, seven times, whatever it ends up being, I mean, our, our call is right in the middle of that. But one percent mortgage rates are going to be gone, and and the housing market's going to have to price itself. At something more in the two and a half percent range at minimum, maybe up somewhere above three percent, depending how far the Bank of Canada goes. And that's, um, you know, for a market that has stretched valuations in terms of, you know, affordability, even adjusting for incomes and interest rates, it's going to be a pretty stern test. And so, at, at minimum, I think you're going to see prices level off, and maybe some of the hotter markets actually do correct a little bit. I think I'm, I'm more or less with you there. I think mortgage rates, if the bank gets to 175-ish, prime gets close to 4%. Uh, so you'll be looking at, I mean, most most mortgages, so it's on the variable side, are, are prime minus something, uh, somewhere between 50 and 100 for the most part. So you're looking at, at three and a half area uh, to reprice, and, and that that's that's where we are in the fixed. And uh, the, one, the one thing I'd say before um, listeners get, get too bearish is, is – all Canadian households get stress tested, and so as as much as there is downside risk on uh, on on housing on prices, uh, one prices have gone up so much that even a ten to twenty percent correction really uh, probably only puts the most recent buyers uh, under underwater, and I mean much very recent within the past six months or so, and the fact that everyone's been tested at at five five and a quarter percent so uh canadian home buyers need to be able to prove they can afford mortgage payments if rates rise to five five and a quarter percent somewhere in that neighborhood uh and and so 
even higher rates shouldn't put too much pressure on the housing market. You're not going to have a U.S. style crisis in, on the housing market uh, just because rates are going higher at this point. So we're, we're nowhere near that point. It's more more like there is so much froth. We just need some some correction. Am I off on any of that, Rob? Or does that that sound uh, reasonable? No, no, that that's exactly how I think about it too. This is really an issue of just cleaning some froth out of the asset price that got probably too far ahead of itself. Um, it, it's it's not a, a financial stability issue because, as as you said, we are stress testing, and really, it's not a major negative equity issue because you know if we get a twenty percent correction, you're really going back only six months or so, right? And and at the end of the day as well, like as we talked about off the top, there is still real underlying demographic strength uh, that is not going to go away, at least for, for for a couple more years. So there is going to be a support in there as well. And immigration. Don't forget that. I mean, we the four or 500,000 people a year coming into Canada, uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, and so that that underlying support, that underlying demand is is going to stay there. Uh, and and one thing I forgot to mention on the supply side, you're you're dead on. There just aren't enough tradespeople to build all those houses. I mean, I'm 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 still waiting for my uh, my my hot tub came last week. I'm still waiting for it to get hooked up because the electrician needs. I don't even know what he needs a piece. Johnson Rod, who God knows, um, <laughs> why wire through my house. I, I have no idea what's taking so long, but um, we're waiting, and we're going to keep waiting apparently because he's got plenty of other stuff to do also. And I, I suspect I'm not first on the list given my, the the tiny size of my job. So, uh, yeah, trades trades are are definitely challenging to come by, and this is that's just my story. But I've heard, uh, I mean, dozens of other people uh, just trying to get little things done, and you just there just there isn't anyone to take those jobs anymore. Uh, given given where the unemployment rate is and, and all that, uh, it is a very tight labor market, and the strength in housing and home home construction generally, with all those houses still under construction, I mean it, it's hard to believe that we can build even more than uh, than what's uh, underway at the moment. Uh, so I mean, I, I think I want to the wrap up. I think from all this, or maybe the bigger takeaway, the pandemic. I mean, the the fact that rates fell to the bottom during the pandemic and and drove a change in housing preferences really did push home prices higher. And some of that, of course, fundamentally driven. But the latest, call it six to, I don't know, 12, maybe a little bit longer months of price appreciation, uh, probably a little bit overboard at this point. So there's room for some some healthy correction uh, to get us back closer to where fundamentals are. And, and longer run, you still have those underlying factors that should support uh, support support housing demand. So uh, as much as prices probably pull back a little bit from here or, or once rates get up a little bit more, uh, the, the longer term outlook is still still decent. It's it's. I mean, I think people expecting 10, 20, 15, whatever percent annual gains in their home price are probably delusional and shouldn't be thinking that way. Um, but prices should continue to, to rise slowly but surely over time, maybe kind of low mid single digits sounds about right over kind of a long run period of time. Um, let's wrap up housing there. Um, it is also... Uh, as, as as the Bank of Canada begins their their rate hike uh, their rate hike cycle, we're all, we're also in uh, in spring, and and that means provincial budget season. Uh, we have about half of the provinces uh, already in hand. We'll get to Saskatchewan later today. The biggies that we have so far are BC, Alberta, and 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 Quebec. Uh, we had Quebec yesterday, and maybe I, they they might be one of the bigger stories of of the three, just given what they've done here and how they've chosen to to 
spend their money. Uh, Rob, can you give us a bit of an outline as to what you've seen in, in budget season so far and if there have been any meaningful surprises? Sure. So nothing overly surprising. I think I think the big surprise was over the course of 2021. Um, not not so much a surprise for us or maybe even for the market, but for like for finance ministers and for for relative to budget forecast, 2021 just came in so much stronger than they had initially thought if you go back one year ago to the spring of 2021. And I, I mean, at the end of the day, the economies and the job market just came back so much faster than 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 finance ministers across this country could have predicted. And the, the the increase in revenues relative to those initial forecasts through 2021 was just unprecedented. We've never really seen that kind of upside before. So um, that that deficit last year actually came in, you know, quite a bit smaller than expected at the start of the season. This year, I think what we're starting to see is that the momentum has leveled off. So if you're in an oil producing province and you have access to, to royalties off of $100 WTI, then then yeah, you still have some pretty terrific budget momentum. But for the other names like the BCs, Ontarios, and Quebecs, what we're starting to see now is that growth is settling down. Um, budget forecasts are are starting to kind of get more in line with reality rather than being massively surprised to the upside. And so that year-over-year momentum is starting to fade. So you know, c- combined at the provincial level, the deficit is probably going to be pretty steady year over year, if not maybe a touch wider, depending on on, on what Ontario does. Obviously, they're a big driver of this. Um, and borrowing as well looks to, to, to stay pretty chunky again this year. All that to say, I mean, the, the, the big takeaway through this is that the provinces got through this exceptionally well, even if momentum is leveling off right now. I mean, combined, we're, we're looking at a deficit that's probably only around 1% of GDP or so. And I mean, the big story through COVID was that Ottawa stepped in and funded the vast majority of the spending that was necessary for for Canada and actually transferred a good 30 or $40 billion down to the provincial level, which really helped support the bottom line. So the provinces are actually in, in great shape con- considering where we've been. Okay. So, I mean, good good news story for Canada. Um, I, looking Looking forward... The drivers for provincial revenue are, are nominal GDP growth, and, and given that inflation is probably going to stay pretty high through most of this year, uh, that that should drive more solid revenue growth. Am I, am I correct in that assumption? Oh yeah, for for sure. So underlying revenue growth, like just from the income tax side, is still going to run at a pretty strong clip. I think most this year are assuming you know three, four, five percent growth. Obviously, it depends on the province, um, but that that seems to be at or slightly above what is trend like or, or or you know potential and 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 honestly if inflation continues to run and and real growth holds up there probably will be a little bit of upside through this year as well based on on um you know what we're expecting versus what some of the early provinces to to post budgets have have put down on paper so yeah so that so that slide is pretty solid the, the side that's going to trail off a little bit is on federal transfers. And there was obviously some pretty outsized one-off transfers through 2021 related to COVID. We're, we're starting to see those come come back down and normalize. So that's a little bit of a drag in some cases as well. 
Okay, so uh, the federal federal transfer drag probably offset. I mean, we have inflation at at five for CPI at least at at five uh, percent this year. So I I, I kind of doubt any of the provinces are looking at it that high. Um, so so generally conservative as they always are. Uh, revenue forecasts maybe that that gets offset by the the drop in federal transfers and still things look pretty good. I mean, with uh, with borrowing coming down generally, uh, we'll we'll see what the federal budget looks like. Probably at some point in the next month, I would hope, uh, now that uh, we have a, a new uh, agreement at the federal level to get the budget passed, I suspect the liberals will uh, unveil something uh, in, in, in short order. We'll see what that, that brings. Maybe maybe I'll have you on again in a few weeks to, to discuss that, uh, since that, that should be uh, should be interesting. See what we'll get at the time. Uh, stay, staying on the provincial theme, Rob. I guess which which province was the most disappointing, uh, and and I say that with with an eye on Quebec's budget yesterday, where they I think could have come in a little bit better. I mean, they announced uh, notable new spending plans for next year, and they uh, announced a cash handout for this year, and and spreads did widen uh, on the back about they widened about half a basis point. Uh, Quebec spreads on the back of the, the budget release, so uh, the market was clearly a little bit disappointed, looking for something better. Uh, it did, does, does Quebec stand out for you? How, how do they look? And was there someone else that also uh, maybe didn't look quite as good as, as you, had, you had hoped? Yeah, so Quebec look, still looks pretty good. I guess maybe the disappointment was that uh, we, we've kind of been conditioned to see these much bigger upside surprises. And and there was underlying strength there in revenues. Like like through the forecast horizon, there was a pretty good chunk of, of revenue upside, $4 or $5 billion or something like that. Um, what they did, though, is they turned around and and just pushed out a you know five hundred dollar per person cash payment that ended up costing them uh, almost three and a half billion dollars. So that that took a chunk of of the upside uh, out of the bottom line. But um, you know there there still are. I think they had like ex- on a three billion dollar deficit this year. So they still had I think explicitly two and a half billion dollars worth of contingencies. And I'm t- I'm talking on a public accounts basis now, not not the uh, not the number they report for. You know, for legislative purposes, this is this is the the number that affects borrowing. Uh, so they they you know they could very well still have a balanced budget this fiscal year, even though they haven't posted it yet. And then next year, and and through the forecast horizon, they actually are posting public accounts budgets that are that are balanced. Um, so they look they look quite good, and that net debt ratio is is falling as well relative to GDP. And again, if there's if anything, there probably is maybe a little bit of upside on the economic side there. So. I wouldn't. I wouldn't write them off yet. Um, they still look quite good from a fiscal perspective. You mentioned who was maybe the disappointment. I would say uh, probably British Columbia. Uh, to, to, to be honest, so they went back into deficit, probably by more than we're going to see anybody else do this year at you know five and a half billion dollars, um, and they're borrowing a lot. So not not just to to fund that bigger deficit, but they have a pretty big capital spending program going on as well. Part of it's related to flood rebuilding and stuff like that. But I think they're they're borrowing about uh nineteen billion dollars this year. So that's up like ten billion dollars year over year. Uh and that's that's pretty chunky for them. Um and with a lot of spending priorities in the pipeline, they're 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 looking at deficits in the you know, five billion, four billion, three billion dollar range still over the next two or three years. Uh, so, on a relative basis, like we're we're used to seeing persistent surpluses and 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 low and stable debt to GDP ratios in BC, we're we're seeing 
the, a bit of the opposite now where we're seeing persistent deficits and that debt ratio rising. So that's one area I would say was a little bit disappointing. Um, now, to be fair, they, they, they always do run with very conservative budget assumptions. And as long as I've been doing this, unless there's some kind of crisis out there, British Columbia will come in above the bar that they set by the time the year is up. It's just that that message we're getting from them of persistent deficits and rising debt is is not is 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 not the best one, especially relative to some of the others out there. Rising debt—that was going to be my uh, my question, I guess. Like if, if, if that's picking up, clearly that's not not credit friendly. Um, at, 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 uh, this is a bit of an unfair question, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, halfway or most of most at least halfway through budget season, uh, who who are your favorite provinces at this point? And and it's not fair to ask because we don't have Ontario yet. Uh, so uh, I guess you you could still pick them, expecting them to to beat. But I mean, it, it's who knows <laughs> in this this day and age, things uh, you never know what uh, what the government's going to come up with. Uh, from a spending or revenue perspective, for that matter. So, uh, I mean, pecking order, maybe top three provinces. Why don't you do it that way uh, at this point, given given where spreads are, how they've behaved, and uh, what what our macro forecast is for the Canadian economy, for the provinces, for oil prices, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the easy one is Alberta. The, I, the question is what's priced in already, and probably a lot has already been priced in. But that, that province very quickly went from one of the, tougher fiscal situations in Canada to now probably, again, the best. Um, and I know that their credit rating was under pressure early last year, and it was just way too premature because look at where we are now, right? Back in surplus. Um, and, and and already, like the budget that they just released now with a small surplus is already probably five, $6 billion too light um, or, 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 or underestimating what, what they're actually going to see, if, if not more this year. So uh, they're they're in a great spot again, and obviously, hundred dollar oil is is behind that, and you know it, it it can come and go quickly, but right now it's it's coming. So I mean that's that's the easy one. Um, you mentioned Ontario. I I, I Ontario has been a mystery through this whole pandemic because they've been publishing numbers that look just so exceptionally weak to what we think the reality is and what some of the others are doing, and. I, 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 I still can't fully wrap my head around why they're, you know, looking at last check at a eighteen billion dollar deficit this year. I think they already cut that in half, but I suspect if they want to, they can chop that in in half again. Um, so I, I think there's upside here. Of course, we do have an election in June, so the budget that we do get from Ontario, whenever we get it, is probably going to be loaded with with some measures either on the tax side or. Um, or, or, or some other kind of combination of spending that 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 pushes a lot of the fiscal upside back out to to voters and taxpayers. But from a medium term perspective, I think there's still quite a bit of room to go here as this economy recovers. And then um, you asked for three. Who else do we like? Um, I mean, there's only two. I, I that's Qu- fine. <laughs> if you okay. only have two, that's fine. We, we talked. We talked about Quebec. I think that one's still. That Quebec is still pretty solid as well. I guess the only question here is like at a hundred dollar oil, if it persists, this is typically where Central Canada starts to weaken relative to the others from an economic perspective. Um, I just, I don't think it's going to look quite as dramatic as we saw earlier in the decade, where where Alberta was growing at like six or seven percent and. A lot of labor in central Canada was just taking off for Alberta. I don't think it's going to be that dramatic. Um, I, I, I think I think Ontario and Quebec can continue to grow pretty solidly, even 
even if they do get hit a little bit harder by oil prices. Yeah, I, I, so I totally agree there. For, uh, let me, on Ontario, come back and on oil and, and, and the relative growth dynamics in Canada. An important aspect of that kind of 10 years ago or so, uh, and, and really kind of pre-global financial crisis and, and post-global financial crisis, um, the Canadian dollar. Uh, as oil prices went up, Canadian dollar strengthened. That that hurt Central Canada exports. That 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 weighs on that that part of the economy, um, and and we're not seeing that now. You're not seeing that strength in the Canadian dollar, and so the export hit isn't there the way that it was before. It also means we we bear the full brunt of of higher prices. But uh, I, I I think that probably is a trade off that's okay, uh, especially as the intensity of of oil usage kind of declines over time. Uh, that should mean that Central Canada comes out of this okay. And, and there's no way you're going to get that labor exodus that you had. There just isn't the demand for labor uh, the way that there once was. The, the, there's, there's no monster new construction sites in, in Alberta uh, for, all, for all the new oil sands projects or anything like that because there really aren't any new projects. Uh, so, the, so that part's pretty key. That being said, I, I still I like Alberta just like you. Um, I'm, I'm Longer term, I'm pretty upbeat on oil still. I think there's a, there's a pretty high floor under oil at this point. Uh, it's pretty clear that higher prices don't really drive higher production right now. Uh, so that that that's that's important. It tells you that uh, you're probably unlikely to get a, a big time drop in prices. And it's hard for me to think that uh, the sanctions on Russia are going to go away anytime soon. Uh, that that feels like a long term thing as well. So uh, ongoing sanctions there, ongoing pressure there, uh, move a, a, a global or, or Western shift away from Russian energy generally. Uh, all that suggests that oil stays kind of at least at 80 bucks, probably, I'd, I'd argue probably 90 might be the floor, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood until something really fundamentally changes. Uh, and and that, that's that's bullish Alberta. I think the question for them will be how disciplined they can remain over the next few years. And and if next year's budget looks good like this year, then spreads probably keep going. That There is room for them to, 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 to tighten a little bit further. Yeah, no, t- totally. And if you look back to when they were running surpluses, like mid-2010s, I think, well, where was Alberta? Like, 20, 25 basis points through Ontario. Yep. Um, so we probably don't go all the way back to that extreme, but we have more room to go from where we are today, I would say. Yeah. At the time, they had no debt. So that that that's different. Right. They have, they have net debt now. But I mean, that'll get paid down over time. That's why I think the government needs a little bit of credibility and, and just some a bit of a track record here. And 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 then and then there's there's a, there's room to, to, to keep going on this. Uh, that, that's about time. So let's, let's wrap things up here, Rob. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show this week. And, uh, I, I will have you on again, maybe for the federal budget sooner than you think. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Sounds good to me. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. 
Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.